I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. I'm recording my part of Julia Zamiro asks, who cares on the lands of the Gundungurra and Darawal people? Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the podcast. A podcast about politics for people who hate politics. This is Julia Zamiro asks, who cares? Hello, Julia here. And yes, once a month for the next five months on the Irrational Fear podcast, Feed, I'm going to be having conversations about getting active and showing you you have powers to make change in the world and talking to civic leaders from all walks of life to find out how they got active. This month on the podcast, I'm talking with two people who know a great deal about Indigenous-led education. We know education isn't equal, it's often expensive, and our state schools certainly need more support. But for Indigenous kids and adults, uh, education can be woeful and the system can be woeful for them. So I'm speaking today to two uh, incredible leaders in this field. First up, proud Gamilaroi man Corey Tutt is an Indigenous mentor and STEM champion. He's the founder of Deadly Science, an initiative that provides science books and early reading material to remote schools in Australia. He's the 2020 New South Wales Young Australian of the Year. And he also recently won a Eureka Prize. If you're not familiar, the Australian Museum Eureka Prizes are the country's most comprehensive national science awards. And they honour excellence across the areas of research and innovation, leadership, science engagement and school science. I'm just going to give you a bit of a trigger warning here. Uh, Corey does cover some heavy topics, um, losing his best friend, uh, so I'm letting you know that now. I started asking him about these awards and, and what they mean. These awards are fantastic accomplishments and they're great for making my head feel a lot larger than what it is. The circumference of my head has grown 15 centimetres since I've won these awards. But no, all jokes aside, these awards are 
uh, a responsibility to me to make them accessible to all kids so that they, you know, one day can see themselves in the picture. If you ask majority of the kids I work with, do you ever see yourself winning the Eureka Prize or the Young Australian of the Year Award? They would probably say to you, no way. So my role and my responsibility now is to go to these remote communities, go to these schools, be a good example, show that these kids can be part of the picture and picture of science and and be part of that. Um, And if I'm not doing that, then that award is just a waste on me because I need to be responsible with it in including, you know, the next generation of deadly scientists. You've engaged with over 90 schools around Australia and there's been a 25% increase in engagement in STEM-related subjects. You've given 28 Deadly Junior Science Awards. Well, now. Um, I reckon I've given a couple of hundred of those out now. What I'm always interested in is that we say that people don't care, we think that people aren't doing anything. We know full well that there's lots of incredible projects happening all over the place. But with you, Corey, I know that Uh with you, you're someone who had an interest in science to begin with, but how did you really connect to science as a young kid? I didn't have the best life growing up. I had experienced my father leaving my mum at age two and that's enough to sort of throw a lot of kids off the rails, I guess. At eight years old, I I witnessed a fatal accident. It was pretty tough and it meant that I was never really in one place for very long. I grew up in the Illawarra region of New South Wales and the South Coast is where I was born, but I also spent time in Tumby Bay in South Australia and I also spent time in Bungonia, um, which is in the central tablelands of New South Wales. So I've really been everywhere, man. Um, so I, I put a lot of my energy into reptiles and animals and, and things that I would find around the place. That's always a really good way to make friends is that if you pick up a blue tongue lizard in the <laughs> playground or at home, people want to talk to you about it because it's a, it's a pretty bizarre thing to do. Because I moved around a lot, it was very, very hard for me to to get any structure in my life um, as a kid. And it probably affected me as, like, it probably affected me in one and two ways. I was never satisfied with just being the mundane, you know, day-to-day. I was always striving to achieve my dreams. And I was driven as a, as a real, as a young kid, I was driven. I nearly, never really fit into the, you know, the notion that that I couldn't do things, that I didn't put my mind to. I wanted more for my life and I was, I was pretty determined that I was, if, when I became a parent, I was never going to be the same. I was always going to be, I was always going to do the things that my parents couldn't do for me. But your granddad had a lot to do with your interest in reptiles and reading. Yeah, he did. He gave me a book called Reptiles in Colour and that was published in 1984. Um, which is consequently um, eight years before I was born, um, but I got it in about 1998. That book in particular was pretty raggedy by the time it got to me and it was, um, you know, it had another little boy's signature and it was like maybe happy birthday Billy or something, but I don't care, I copied his name out and wrote Corey. That book was really important for me because when I was chasing those water dragons and and I was reading that they could hold their breath underwater for an hour and, and things like that in that book, I would sit there with a little stopwatch and I would chase war dragons into dams and I, and I would, you know, I'd time it, make sure it was right, you know. Um, but, you know, these were things that I did when I was a kid and I, I learned how to read off these books. So, you know, when other kids are reading The Hungry Caterpillar, I was just reading science books. 
And did you know at that time, did you make a link that that was science or was it just something that kids did where you grew up? Was it an Indigenous experience? I don't think it was an Indigenous experience or a, or a science experience and such. It was, it was probably me trying to contend with the bad things in my childhood and, and invest my energy into something that was positive. You know, a lot of kids were like me when growing up. Like we we sometimes grow out of it, some of us don't. And um, I feel like I was always connected to the culture and, and people. Is it true that a career advisor once said to you that kids like you don't go to uni and they should stick to a trade? I don't wish any ill harm or, um, or any bad will to this career advisor. He was just trying to help me. I think he, I think it was the old, I'm going to, give this kid a, a whack with a metaphorical stick and mm-hmm. that will be the thing that that drives him to do more. And it probably had the opposite effect, to be honest. When I sat across from this career advisor and I sat in this over, you know, this, this poorly designed chair that was, um, you know, had this poor fabric on it and I looked across at him and I said, I wanted to be a zookeeper or a wildlife documenter. And the third option was ABC sports commentator because I thought it was pretty easy and I could fund the other two. I think at that moment I felt very determined that I would not, you know, I would not take his advice because I know if I, if I had have worked in a trade, I would have been hopeless at it. And I, I really was desperate to become a zookeeper. And um, as you do, you troll through social media when you're a kid, um, especially when you're a teenager, um, born in my time, which was MySpace and Facebook and when it first yeah. came out. And I saw this crazy woman with a rifle standing above a snake and she was in this place called Boy Up Brook. And she was just, you know, a really nice lady who runs this wildlife sanctuary that, it's just killing snakes on a property. And I was like, oh, I ended up organising to, to go over to Rue Gully and Boyart Brook, which is 3,885 kilometres from my house. Didn't <laughs> contact my mother or family members for three weeks. And I went over there and look, that moment for me, I, as soon as I got over there, I was introduced to this, this woman who was kind of older and her name was Norma. And she had a husband called Jim and this dog named Holly. And, and Norma and Jim were the first people in my life that had ever shown me love that was unconditional, that, you know, they were just proud that I, you know, was going and, and working in this wildlife sanctuary. And I, I remember that you know, I didn't know how to even make toast, to be honest. I couldn't even make you a cup of tea. And Norma didn't judge me or anything like that. She, normally people would sort of laugh at someone if they didn't know how to do that, but she kind of knew that I I didn't get shown a lot growing up because why? why how could I, you know? My mum was a single mum and um, we were, you know, we were sort of moving around a lot. We, you know, she didn't learn those things, so how could mm. she possibly teach me? And how it old was, were you there? I was 16. With... Wow. So you've gone there all by yourself. I've gone there all by myself. And, yeah, I, I get a bit sad when I talk about Jim and Norma because they've now passed, but they were the first people that I ever met that that didn't care. They didn't care about the baggage. They didn't care that I was from DAPTO. They didn't care that I was Indigenous. You know, they cared about me as a person. And um, from that moment, from working at that wildlife sanctuary, and by the time I came back and started at Nowra Wildlife Park, Jim and Norma sent me messages every single week until April last year. 
telling me how proud they were. They followed my journeys. They, you know, they rode the highs and they, they stuck by me with the lows. And um, I will never, ever forget what they did for me as a, as a 16 year old. And, um, but, you know, I fast forward and I'm, I'm back in Nara and I'm working at Shorehaven Zoo. How did you get that? job how did you know to find that were you sort of looking through for jobs or had you was it a word of mouth thing someone had had bumped into me that worked at Taronga Zoo and they were very keen to have me but unfortunately I lived in Nowra and I lived very very far away from Mossman um, and I you know, I made the decision that it was going to be too hard because I, I had my red peas, but it wasn't like I couldn't drive up from Nowra every day. So I applied for a volunteer position at Nowra Wildlife Park and Shorehaven Zoo. And I remember the first day I had there and I'd just come back from Boyup Brook. I'd come back from Western Australia. I'd had all this experience that, you know, I thought that I was, you know, not, I thought I was just really confident and I was really happy and, um, you know, it was easily the the most like it was the happiest morning of my life so far that I I, I remember it because I I got up at five a.m. I was meant to start at eight. I got up at five a.m. I cooked a massive breakfast. <laughs> I I wore a button up shirt, which I was so proud. Like I was just like, you know, for me it was I I'd brought new shoes. I'd you know I had saved up to this was my first day as a zookeeper and the start of everything for me. And I remember I was sitting there and um, I was sitting under the, you know, under the walkway there and I was waiting for the head keeper to turn up and he turns up and he goes, why are you so early? And I was like, cause I'm keen. I'm very keen to get started. Like, let's go, let's get into it. And he's mm. like, no, 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 settle down. And, you know, he, you know, him and I are friends now, but we had a, we had a mm. running battle he often called me names, um, often, yeah, often told me that I, I shouldn't do zookeeping and, and things like that. But, you know, again, I was determined to prove him wrong. Mm. You know, I was so determined to prove him wrong and get myself a zoo, a, a paid position and a zookeeping uniform. And the day that the owner gave me my first narrow wildlife park shirt, I've still got it today in my yeah. cupboard. Mm. and because it was an Arab wildlife park back then and it, it looked like Swiss cheese and it had so many holes in it. I even had tan spots because of how many holes I had in this shirt and oh I was God. so proud of it. It was, I've done it, you know, mm. I've done it. This is the thing that it was, it was my dream. Mm. Um, I loved it. You know, again, sometimes, Julia, that things happen and, and life can slip quickly you know, change on it. Like it can change in a second. And I'd had a best friend that had um, volunteered with the zoo and he, him and I started at the same time and, and he, he eventually got kicked out because he, he had sort of had some issues at the zoo. And like, it was the first time I'd met someone that was on my level that I was, I was friends with. And, and, you know, we, we got along really well. We actually got like, got a similar tattoo on our left shoulder you know, we, we'd, we were going to move in together and um, we can't, you know, we we're going to do the zookeeping thing. And we, we had all these plans, but then um, he, he had committed suicide and he'd hung himself in, in our house that we we're meant to move into. And um, sorry to hear that, Corey, that must've been a horrible thing to witness. Oh, it changed everything for me. 
Um, it changed everything for me. And it was the second time in my life that I'd experienced death at a really young age and, mm. and not just, you know, older people, actual young people dying. And it, it hit me a lot harder than the accident that I'd witnessed when I was a kid because I was an adult now. I was 18. What do you do when you're a baby face 18 year old when you've, you've lost your best mate? And I think that, you know, the things I ignored at the zoo, like the, the low pay rates, the over hours we work, the, you know, the, the things you have to deal with that, you know, that zookeepers have to deal with on a daily basis that aren't, you know, that aren't glamorous. The zoo, the zoo life is not glamorous at all. Mm, mm. Those are things that I decided that I, I didn't like that much anymore. Mm. Um, I didn't have the motivation. Mm. I was struggling with my why. Why am I doing this? Why was this my passion? And, you know, even seeing a blue tongue lizard just didn't, you know, I get so much energy even now when I see a cool animal that I haven't seen in ages and I lost that. And that is a really scary thing. That is like losing, you know, it's like looking in the mirror and seeing someone completely different. I saw an ad in the, uh, the Illawarra Mercury. I feel a bit stupid now talking about it, but I got in my best low suit, which was my year 10 formal suit at 18. And I got off to this guy's house and because yeah. I'd rang up and he said, you, you've got an interview on Monday. So I went to his house and he, I walked in and I had a cup of tea and he's like, oh, so you're starting Monday? And I'm like, what? what? And um, <laughs> I worked out quite later that I was the only person that applied so I felt a bit stupid wearing my formal suit. And to give the listeners a brief description of what my formal suit looked like, I was a massive good Charlotte fan where I had white volleys, white belt, black pants, white suspenders, and a white tie and a white hat. And um, it was a bit of, I was a bit of a good Charlotte fan. So I was a bit of a punk. So I the wore punk? that to I wore that to the alpaca interview. And what was the job? You were going to be a, a shearer for alpacas? Is no, that an alpaca handler. Oh, a handler, right. James had been a bit creative with the title because he, <laughs> he had had no, like he had no people applying for this job. Wow. Um, anyway, we I get there and it's uh, my first day. So the first alpaca that comes out, they they show me how to, to put it down safely. They go, this is how you put it down safely because you've got to tie them down wow. and to shear them safely. And I'm like, oh, yep, got this. I've been feeding a four-metre crocodile for the last you know, year and a half. I'm... You know, I've got it, thanks. I've got it. I've got it. Yeah, it's going to be fine. And little did I know that the first alpaca that I would go and shear would headbutt me in the face and crack my cheekbone. Oh, no. And I'm crying. Like, I'm bawling my eyes out. Like, trying not to cry, but I'm like, oh, I'm not crying, but I'm crying. <laughs> you know, James asked me if I'm all right, and he could, see my, he could see my face, like, swelling up. Little did I know that that moment with James would be my unofficial counselling where he... He was like the father I never had in the sense of he was someone I could talk to that I was stuck sitting next to for 12 hours a day in the car driving between jobs and, and time, time went slow. Mm. Um, when, when my best friend died, time was going very, very fast and mm. he slowed it down for me. And I think that cheering saved my life. If it wasn't for James, I don't think I would be here. Like that's a really tough thing to comprehend because mm. if I hadn't have met him at that time, at that point in my life, would he have had the impact on me that he has? Mm. Probably not. When did deadly science come into play? When's that sort of starting up in your head? When deadly science started, I was working as an animal technician 
um, at the University of Sydney and I started talking to these kids in Redfern and Waterloo and we'll talk about any everything. I would, you know, I would show them some of the stuff that I was doing. I would tell them about the researchers. I would show them on my iPhone all this science stuff that, you know, was going on and they were just so intrigued. They loved mm-hmm. it. They were so, you know, and that moment that I was doing that, I felt the love again that mm. I had when I was at the zoo, the, the days where I was so happy that I, nothing could change anything for me. Like I was so in, like I was so in the zone. And um, one of the kids said to me is how come I didn't get these opportunities? And this is like, this is deadly and this is science. How come I didn't get these opportunities? And, um, you know, mm. I, I sort of thought about it and then I started Googling remote schools and and just I found out that our schools are just completely under-resourced with STEM and, and we naturally told Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids that sport and art are the only ways to be successful. And how about I just send you some books? And this one school had 15 books in its whole school and I ended up, you know, going to Dimmicks and dropping down a K, a, a grand of solid hard cash Uh, And I purchased so many books that I could barely carry them out of the shop. And um, I sent those books to that school and Mm. I, it was, it was something in me that clicked because there was one school that, that said, Hey, how about you send books to my school, my friends over here, because we need more science books and more equipment and things like that. And I started a second job. I worked at the Hand Rob Pet Hotels um, yeah. up at Duffy's Forest and I scrubbed and cleaned kennels. I acted as a receptionist. I probably acted as a security guard at times as well. <laughs> I worked really hard for a number of months. I I did things like, you know, jobs for mates. I sold some of my possessions. You know, I, I did things like that. I worked extra hours. Um, I think I sold my TV at one point to, to pay for these books. And then it was Marianne Large. And actually I met our friend, Dr. Carl, and then he gave me some books. And then Marianne Large was like, you should set up a GoFundMe because people would, people would donate to this. You know, people like would yeah. want to help you. Like, GoFundMe just- is such a great way to get something started. I mean, everyone's happy to chip in 10 or $20. Uh, and then if everybody does it, then you can really make something of it. And, and yeah, little did I know, like, before like I was I started putting it online what I was doing and and I like at that point I probably sent about 2,000 books off um, before I started putting it online and I you know I put this GoFundMe in in place and I was happy with just 500 bucks to be honest because I was spending so much money on books and things and I ended up becoming friends with this thing this fellow called Brian Cox on Twitter um and (laughs) He, he was all right. Like, you know, he's, he's all right. Nice. Oh, Brian. Yeah, he's nice. And he, he gave me some books and I met him and I I didn't really know the protocol. I didn't call him Professor Cox or anything like that. I was like, hey, Brian. If you're not sure yeah. who, who Corey's talking about, it's Brian Cox, um, of course, from television and him and I worked together on Stargazing. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, that's what Twitter's for, Corey, isn't it? You just go, why not? Just ask. He can only say no. I, I gave him a black fella handshake and I'm not sure he was ready for that. No, um, I reckon he would have. No, been. no. Um, but, you know, it, it, it grew from there and um, I I had this email come up on my phone and it was like, and I remember it really well, you've been nominated for Young Australian of the Year and I'm like, 
what the hell is that? Wow. Um, didn't even know what it was. And um, I ended up going and I sort of said to my mum, I'm like, you know, mum, I'd really like you to come with me, um, you know, to the, the awards ceremony because I feel like you deserve to see your son and or your daughter, you know, win something worthwhile. And and I wanted to bring her because I I just wanted her to, I just wanted her to have a proud moment, you know. She's she hasn't always had it the best, and you know. And she came along, and and Gladys read my name out. I went up, I I waddled up the stairs because I was very excited, I was very nervous, and I sat down and I handed my honor roll to my mum, and I'm like, "This is yours." And you know, I was gonna, to be honest, Julie, I was gonna have a, a couple of cheeky free beers and say, "Wow, well done," pat myself on the back. But before I knew it, my Gladys Berejiklian had, had had read my name out again, and she's like, "And the young Australian is for New South Wales, Corey Todd." And it's like, I got up on stage and I'm like, "My speech is be kind to your mum." <laughs> yeah, and it was just like my life changed from that moment. It's true that an award like an Australian of the Year, Young Australian of the Year, it brings um, incredible opportunity but baggage as well. Sometimes it's a big responsibility and you say your life changed in what ways? One, I had a camera in my face. when All the time. Yeah, I got dragged. As soon as I got off stage, mm. I didn't get to say anything to my partner. Um, had to deal with the expectation of this looming event where mm. I was up against Ash Barty, the world number one in tennis. Um, what was when, she another Australian of the year was she she was a finalist for she was the Queensland Australian of the year and a finalist mm. for the national one and to be honest I I don't think I handled it as well as what I could have um, but you know the the thing is is that you only get to do these things once mm. and I quickly learned that I could utilize my award and 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 the trophy and stuff and I can go out to schools and I could put a bit of gaffer tape over my name, which sounds really bizarre. And I could let kids hold it and I could let them tell me why they should be the young Australian of the year. And the answers were, I'm kind to my mum. I'm kind to, you know, my people in the playground. I, I, you know, I do the right thing. And, and these are the reasons why they deserve to be. And there's the reasons why I deserve to be as well. And everyone Absolutely. else. You said something for it's very interesting. You said we often expect that Indigenous kids will uh, thrive in sport or art. There's this notion that, ah, but that other stuff's too hard or beyond them. That must yeah. just be make you so, I mean, it's just a ridiculous thing to think, isn't it? I remember I had a remote school once contact me and it was a teacher from that school and I you know, as I do, I normally talk to the principal and I say, what do you need? And, and this principal turned around and told me that don't bother sending resources here because our kids will never learn. And it's, you know, and I'm like, why is this person in a job? And uh, I had a quite a big extensive argument with this principal because I'm like, at least give these kids a chance, you know, at least work with them, like try and work with them. Don't occupy a space where you are, you know, you were trying to mentor these kids into a future, but you would not accept resources because you don't think your kids deserve them. So it's never been easy. Uh, no. I've made mistakes along the way, like I've, like anyone. But um, I mean, I think if you don't make mistakes, you don't learn, and at least it's worth trying. 
Um, yeah. and, and and stuffing it up sometimes because, you know, it's pretty hard having an argument with a principal. And um, I toured high schools doing Shakespeare in high schools when I was mm. 27 and did two years of it, different schools, you know, all over the, all throughout the year, you know, you drive in a little van in a little four of us and, and put up 200 chairs and, and do Shakespeare for kids. And, you know, you'd walk into some schools and it's so funny, the vibe you would get from a head teacher or a principal would absolutely yeah. tell you what that school was about and yeah I mean some of them would just go year nines they're hopeless no don't yeah. they won't get any of it and you're thinking wow well we're here we're going to do it anyway but let's surprise you and always at the end of the show always a teacher would come up and say I cannot believe when you ask for volunteers that that particular kid put his or her hand up because they yeah. never do anything and you're thinking yeah well maybe because they're used to they're in a new environment with new people for me also, like, the te- like teachers are great. They're worth their weight in gold, but they can quickly become burnt out. Um, and I quickly found because of the lack of resources and support and it's it flows down. So any of those teachers I, I actually have a lot of sympathy for because if you're burnt out that much, then it, it's taken a while for you to get to that point because most teachers are, are starting off to make things better for our kids. And... Mm. Um, and, you know, like the, there was moments along the way, especially um, the, after I won, you know, the the award that I'd started a new job two weeks in and I literally won that award the second week I was there. So all of a sudden I was, you know, the highest achieving staff member within, you know, uh, like and and this was like, you know, I'm really sorry. I can't do my job right now because I have to go and do this thing with SBS or I have to do this thing with ABC. And I love talking to the media. Like I love it because I get to talk about these kids and the work, but then there was this expectation that I do my job, but also I had the other people in my year, especially at my employer saying, no, no, we want you to do this media thing, Mm. but we don't want to fund deadly science. And we don't want to fund you, but we want you to do this media thing. And, um, you know, I think I've gotten better at at enjoying the moment more. So when when I won this Eureka this time around, I was actually the calmest I've ever been mm. because I knew that everything I've gone through to this moment right now has been for a reason. Mm. And now my reason is and my why is to help inspire these kids to be to, to be good people and hopefully tomorrow be good scientists. Absolutely. Where's it at now, Deadly Science? What, um, I suppose, what's next for it or is there, do you see an end and then you go and do something else? Um, that's a really tough question, but I, like, next for Deadly Science is that I've just hired two new, well, three new people that, you know, I've only had, like, I've only had the one employee and that wasn't me. And I had to learn. Um, mm. I started paying myself, which is something that I never thought could be a thing. Yeah. Um, even though I was putting all those hours in. So I'm learning how to be a boss now. I'm learning how mm. to be the difference between being a caring boss and being someone that that needs to lead as well. Um, and, and also someone that, you know, lets someone else take over the steering wheel for a bit because, mm. you know, as our friend Dr. Carr would say, micro sleeps can get you at any time. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's, um, you know, I, I'm starting to transition deadly science into getting more voices in so that it can, it can be a sustainable entity on its own 
Um, and I can focus on the good stuff, like doing Cosmic Vertigo with Carly Noon and, and, and Zooming with kids and, you know, just enjoying, like, when you do something like Deadly Science, there's three things that happen. You find, your, you find yourself doing way too many hours because you're so passionate. It's like, being, it's like having the latest Harry Potter book and you want to stay up and read as much as you can, but you're tired. Um, mm. But also you, you get an appreciation for what is out there. Um, and also the third one is, is that you burn out. You burn out very, very easily and there's not many people that are going to pick you up when you burn out. So you need to support yourself with the people that can. And for me, I I don't really want to be sitting in the seat of CEO in 10 years' time. Mm. I want one of my deadly scientists to be sitting in there and I want it to be so good that it employs them Mm. and they can continue to support the next generation beyond me. And if if I'm still around, and I'm sure I will be, I hope that I'm there to support them and I'm there that I'm that person to pick them up when they're burnt out. Thank you so much, Corey. It's only 30 years of age, already done so much. And yeah, I particularly love that comment at the end about burnout. You know, it's uh, you can reach incredible heights in your work and in your life and there's always going to be lows and in-betweens, but burnout is a real issue and, uh, when you work that hard off your own bat, you've got to look after yourself and put yourself first sometimes. And I want to give out the lifeline number for anybody who might need it. 131114 is the number if anything came up for you listening to that interview. 131114. And that's Lifeline. What up, what up? Jay-Z asks who cares. It's your boy, Jay-Z. Make some noise. Not bad, Jay-Z. Julia Zamiro. This is Julia Zamiro asks, who cares? Next up, I'm talking with Hayley Maguire. She's a proud Durrambol and South Sea Islander woman from Rockhampton. She's got a passion for working with young people uh, to be critical and active drivers in their own education ecosystem, uh, where Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing are embedded and tied to the aspirations of both Indigenous nations Uh, and their young people. To drive this work, she co-founded the National Indigenous Youth Education Coalition, uh, which is a growing collective of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people to reclaim their Indigenous rights to education. She's also an Obama Foundation leader in the Asia-Pacific. But I started asking her about... uh, She was once a presenter at her local Murray radio station in Rockhampton. Yeah, well, actually, that was my um, first introduction to doing real, I guess, community grassroots work. And, you know, as a millennial, I think we often get pictured as we don't even like to do phone calls. And that was definitely me. And so doing community radio forced me to actually speak to people beyond a text message. And um, (laughs) it's really built really foundational communication skills that I'm so thankful for. Did you have a good experience of education growing up? I think it was overall um, positive, you know, education for like my family and for my parents was a priority um, because it was seen as that um, tool that we, you know, that 
me and my siblings could use to, um, you know, support ourselves in the long run. But there are times when I look back on my educational experiences and you see that, yeah, there are some things where you could see the inequity and a lot of that has really come in hindsight, not so much when you're in the moment. Just little things like doing my work experience and in high school and I wanted to be a teacher, I went back to my old primary school. You just see like the little differences in how um, kids are being treated or like the different expectations of Aboriginal kids. And that's not to say like there was malicious or any um, ill intent there, but yeah, I feel like there could have been things that were better. It's often said that historically education for Indigenous and Torres Strait Island people has been about assimilation and control. What's what's the state of it at the moment, do you think? I think those that legacy is still ongoing, you know, like right now we're having a conversation about what we teach the next generation about the truth mm-hmm. of our history, right? We have an education minister who is calling for a, a patriotic curriculum that gives um, a fair and uh, that doesn't present a negative view of the past because that might cause further indecision. But, you know, I question that completely because one and first and foremost, it's about the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, students in the classroom. And this was an experience I had when you go into your history classroom and you, you're told that Captain Cook discovered Australia, that you're founded as a nation of convicts, and that's the Australian story. Well, that doesn't include, um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people pre-colonisation, but also our fights for rights and a fair equality, um, fair society, um, land rights, all of the fight, everything that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have achieved in this country has been fought for by our, our mob, you know. And to say that for us wanting to fight for freedom is presenting, um, is not consistent with that view or a patriotic Australia, um, I think is really unfair. So we see that, you know, we see this, the way that um, the story that we want to tell ourselves is continuing a colonial narrative right through to, you know, our measurements of success, you know, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. When you think about educational success, you think attendance rates or school retention. Um, those are just indicators. Those aren't the markers of what a good quality education is for our people or how we see that, you know. If you've been fortunate enough to see the In My Blood It Runs film, you'll see how, like, this focus, hyper-focus on um, school attendance and actually having those metrics marked to then welfare payments that will impact a whole family. This kind of control is still continuing and it's continuing in a lot of different ways. Our Education Minister, Alan Tudge, is is living in a kind of an era like the, a conservative 50s with the way he speaks about this mm-hmm. constant attention to patriotism. I, I mean, the, I don't relate to that at all. It's like everything in the government at the moment. They're completely out of touch with the fact that we have to start doing things in a new way. 
We have mm-hmm. to start seeing. And I, I can't understand why people can't get excited by that. Instead of it being, isn't change awful? It's like, but some change is good. And surely yeah. anything that is inclusive and everything that is investigating and being curious again about where we've been is a good thing. Yeah. is I feel like there's so many opportunities that we have to actually be leaders on a world stage. We could be leaders on climate action on a world stage. Um, you know, we could be leaders in investing in Indigenous self-determined nation building and and systems and structures that are innovative, you know, like the Aboriginal medical services and the origins of those are innovative. They're innovative in providing primary health care, um, even the ways that we think about, you know, um, Indigenous education and some of the work that's already happening in this space around making sure learning, learning is connected to country, it's connected to place, it's grounded in um, a holistic view of the whole well-being of a student. You know, these are um, this is um, innovation, you know, that's coming out yeah. of Indigenous communities every day. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's so unfortunate that we seem to be stifling that progress for a some kind of backward ideology. We're recording this just before COP. Part of what those of us who do believe in climate change would like to see is, you know, joining the rest of the world in terms of calling for changes uh, that have to happen in terms of climate and renewables. But in, in, involved in that has to be an understanding of, well, isn't this now a time to also say, how do we now really connect with our history on Indigenous people, what we've done, what we can be, and get that treaty and get a statement from the heart where we can be united, like we want to be united? Yeah, well, I think the thing too which people might forget about that happened with colonisation is that, you know, we had a, a learning system, a knowledge system that came from country, that came from observing country and um, how it changed, how it worked over thousands and thousands of years. And that's then built our identity, our cultures, our ways of being and connecting. And with colonisation, we brought in Western education system, Western forms of parliament, Western sciences, which were disconnected from country you know and so when we look at the impacts that climate change has on country the systems uh that we're working and operating in in australia are fundamentally at the foundational level disconnected you know and so yeah it's about learning that history but also we need to think about that actually our connection to our environment and our connection to land um, and our seas and our waterways plays a part in who we are as human beings and as people. As long as that, you know, disconnection continues and it continues through the different systems that uphold like our current society and the way that society works, we're not going to make the change that we need, you know. So I think it's a whole, it's a cultural change as as well. When I listen to you speak, Hayley, I just think how incredible would it be, how normal should it be, how right it would be to have 15 of you 
in Parliament today, reminding us of that, reminding us that this is where you're living now, this is what this is, and making us connect again. Just it's finding connections again with this, um, as you say, this country and nature and looking after her and, and also undoing, trying to, well, we can't undo it, but try to um, give back in terms of what we've taken away from your people and in terms of the incredible harm we've done as well. We have some incredible representation inside Parliament right now. But, yeah, I feel like there's there's so many mob out there who are young and who are doing this work at the grassroots level, even though in Parliament it would be great, but um, there is a lot of um, work happening and I think some of the people that are leading the way in this space is definitely um, Seed and Millie Telford at the who is leading that first ever grassroots uh, youth climate action um, group. So, but that, that's just one example of many, really. Yeah. To drive this work you're trying to do, you co-founded the National Indigenous Youth Education Coalition, and that's yes. a growing collective of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people to try and reclaim that indigenous. I can't believe I have to say the sentence, reclaiming Indigenous rights to education. It's it's so awful to have to even say that, that you don't have that. But what does that look like? How is that different? Well, I think the ultimate goal for us in our mind is where we see a First Nations-led education system. And, you know, whatever that model is or, I mean, you know, we're still trying to figure that out. But basically, you know, in our current education ecosystem, we have like a broad network of public schools. We've got independent schools, Catholic schools. Um, why not? Why can't? Why haven't we yet had um, support for a First Nations education system where you know local communities can actually think about how do they want to govern and deliver education um, on their country? Um, one, to preserve, you know, our cultural heritage, our languages and culture, however that nation sees fit, but also to really invest in Indigenous pedagogy that has been caring for this continent since time immemorial, you know. Mm. And I think at that level there is so much that can be gained for all children to have access and opportunity to an education system that's being led by First Nations people. And, you know, we often hear about, like, the importance of integration and, you know, embedding Aboriginal and perspectives into whole of systems or curriculum. And, and, yes, that's important, but we also need to think about the power dynamics at play. And through a First Nations-led education system, we're trying to make sure, well, we're wanting to make sure that, at that leadership governance level that the power sits with First Nations people in communities. My dad is French and my mum's Australian. Um, she met him overseas and then we came to Australia. By chance, my primary school, my Aussie primary school, had some French classes in it. So <laughs> I did all my primary school in French and I remember my parents being so thrilled that even though we weren't in France, I would be able to retain my French language. And it yeah. only occurred to me in the last few years, why should I have the luxury of learning my language that is miles away on the other side of the world 
And we weren't all as kids learning one of the many Indigenous mm. languages. I mean, it's it's so heartbreaking, Haley. It's so heartbreaking that it, that 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 was available in the seventies, and Greek school was available for kids on a Saturday. Yeah, and you couldn't learn an Indigenous language anywhere. And we're lucky to have people like Stan Grant's father who. You know, yeah. tried to you know got that his language back and fought hard to make that happen. It's the inequity just continues because you know you would th- you're thinking of oh, that wave of migrants needed that support, but Indigenous people needed that support too. Yeah, and it and it's like that's the thing. I think the the principles around that, like of course you would want all young people to be able to retain that sense of self and that and connect to who they are, you know, but that same opportunity has just never been fully given to First Nations people at like a, at a systemic level, I should say, you know, there has been like the grassroots movements, you know, and innovation, you know, that community members have fought for. And I think that's the great thing about the National Indigenous Youth Education Coalition is that we do get to inherit, you know, like, the activism that came through, you know, mm. when they had a few Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander schools set up, you know, there is more, I think, public, yeah, acceptance of these rights. Like mm. you're demonstrating yourself, Julia, but it's that next, it's that next level now that I feel like us as young people are responsible for. And, you know, for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander young people, um, you know, we're responsible for passing down this longest continuing culture in the world mm. while also facing down really complex global challenges like climate change that, you know, are threatening our cultural heritage sites or, you know, like globalisation and just the, the tensions that that brings or different changing kind of technology, like all these really hard issues and then we have to think about it within the ways that this Australian um, government continues to treat our people. We're operating in a really <laughs> complex environment, but uh, I feel like I'm, I'm very fortunate that we've got, we stand on the shoulders of giants really. There seems to be a common theme too that it's it's your generation and down that are having to do the heavy lifting and I for one just want to keep saying to people I'm here to help. Like if you need sandwiches made or you need some faxing done because that's my era but don't ask me to send any complicated emails. But, I mean, you know, I feel like you're just such a beautiful speaker. It's, I've so heard you on, on many, many different podcasts like this and, and I love it when you say that we need a stronger educational dialogue in this country and I would certainly <laughs> say that for non-Indigenous education as well. I think they're kind of getting it wrong. I think that's sort of losing traction, like what are you making people for the future? How are you making people for the future? And indeed this Indigenous way in, this Indigenous um, way of looking at things is actually more progressive, would be more useful. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny you say that, like, and again, like, I completely agree. Um, I've been able to do some work with Learning Creates Australia, which is a growing alliance of different 
businesses, educators, you know, education providers and policymakers across the country who are wanting to connect together over what is that future of learning in Australia. And that's, yeah, that's been really positive. And we've made sure that we've centred, you know, that First Nations self-determinations and sovereignty is part of that piece of work. But really, it's it's so fundamental. You know, I feel like sometimes, and I'm, I've only been a parent for five years now, but <laughs> you, I feel like as you become a parent too, you want to try and outsource things <laughs> as, as much as you can. But, you know, um, we can't we we can't look at education the same way where it's something that we outsource to the states or to the state really um we really have to think about our young people and that future that they're going to inherit like like i said before with what the situation of aboriginal and young people is all young people are facing a really complex future and we don't even know what the future jobs are going to look like or what's the future society is going to look like. And so we have to think about, well, what are those core values that we want all young people to inherit? What if we think about, you know, our future generations, like six, seven generations from now, what do you want that society to look like? Because really that's what our knowledge systems do is they connect us to those um, people in the future that we're not going to meet, you know, how do we, how do we want to tell them about ourselves, but also what we hope and we want them to be able to, to do, you know, like that's why I feel like education is just so fundamental and also quite beautiful. And, but yeah, we are operating within a system that came out of, you know, the last, industrial uh, revolution, you know, like it's a 150-year-old kind of model. And when we look into the future, well, is this, is it adequate? Yeah, is it adequate? I was looking at, you know, in general in high schools, you know, you're doing your English, mathematics, science and technology, you'll do your uh, human society and its environment, that's one of them, personal development, health, physical education, creative arts, languages if you're lucky, vocational education and training. Geography, you know, where's the critical thinking in that? You know, where we teachers already talk about how, because my mum was a teacher, she was a, a language teacher, and uh, yeah. teachers, you know, 25, 30 years ago talk about how they could do their subject. They could do their subject, but they could also, you know, go off track and maybe do other bits, do something related. They might do civics or they might do politics or they might do how Parliament work, how Parliament House works. Or, And now there's a sense that you're really quite boxed in now. You are, you really have to concentrate on your, on your subject. And there's, there's also no time. There's way more admin now as well. Mm. And the Teachers Federation is constantly talking about pay rises. Teachers haven't, their pay hasn't increased in so long. And, and yet, during the pandemic, I would have thought this was the time when everybody would have looked at teachers and gone, oh, that's what they do. They're incredible. Yeah. yeah. I know. I feel like teachers should be, um, yeah, valued just as much as we value our um, health practice- practitioners in a way. And, you know, I think, yeah, it's it's so 
you're so right in terms of just like those are the common um, things that we hear about, you know, the crowded curriculum or, you know, the additional stress that educators are, are put under. And I just think too, like it's taking a step back, like, you know, the type of inequity that is faced in our education system too. We know that we got one of the most socially segregated education systems in the OECD. So the type of education that you're going to have access to if you're from a low economic household is going to be completely different to those with wealth or who live in particular areas. You know, some of this comes through, you know, depending on, you know, your situation, sometimes you don't even have that choice mm. over the type of education that you can give to your child. You know, those are really, like, hard issues when you think about, like, the importance mm. of having a good quality public education, you know, that's mm. accessible to all young people and where teachers within that, you know, do have a level of agency and do feel like they're being recognised and, and rewarded. Um, yeah, I feel like subjects are a great way to explore content. But, yeah, I think another issue that comes along is the pathway that we tend to put all young people on is towards a university pathway, which is not all bad. But when you get to those senior secondary years, there's a strong emphasis on, like, your type of ACE task score you get, um, the way that those are ranked and calculated are, you know, it, it's the system kind of maintaining itself. And so we need to also think about, well, how do we create broader metrics and broader ways of recognising all the fantastic things that young people knowing can do, like if they've done work in the arts or you know, if they're a musician or if they've done so much work for their communities, you know, how are we really recognising that and giving currency to the richness of that, those experiences mm. and knowledges that young people have, broader than just a, you know, a, a 99 on an ATAR, you know. I know. I mean, I... I, I went to uh, an acting school, you know, tried out for all the acting schools, got into one in Melbourne, and I was 24 by the time I got there and uh, the way they taught, I learned how to learn there basically mm-hmm. because I finally got that, oh, you can learn by watching. Oh, you can yeah. learn by doing. Oh, you can learn by, it's not just all by reading and writing. And that's important. We don't just learn. You've got to do things. If I physically don't do something, so, you know, should we be spending eight hours or six hours a day inside? Maybe that some of that time should be outside. What does a First Nations-led education system look like to you? Like if, in your, if you had your wildest dreams and something yeah. wacky happened like I became Prime Minister and said, yep, we're <laughs> making tertiary, secondary and primary free, uh, go for it. We want to be the smart country. And I've gone, Haley, yes, here you go. <laughs> Instead of spending money on submarines, you may have this money and let's do something interesting. Is there a kind of a a dream scenario to begin with? Yeah, well, for me, like I always think about it in terms of uh, I think I've used enough time. I don't know if I'll reach this goal for my daughter, but hopefully my oh. grandchild or great-granny. But I do, I do want them to be able to go 
like my idea is that we'd have a, our own Durrumbul school on Durrumbul country and that the classroom wouldn't necessarily be the four walls and the chairs. Like, yeah, that would be an option, but spending a lot of time on country where they can, I feel like just get getting that grounding of who they are as a durable person and like the different responsibilities we have to country, I think would be the foundation of that curriculum. I don't think that I'd get rid of like the school bell, you know, like for lunches and recess and stuff like that. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And like, you know, yeah, I just, I don't know why that's a thing, but get rid of the school bell. And um, I would see it as more like integrated with the community, you know, like, yeah, like I'd see like where could there be possibilities for shared space, you know, where community can, where the school is a vital hub, you know, of other community services. And, you know, like there are great examples happening like the Murray School that have health services run out of the school or I'd like to see like communal like libraries and and that kind of stuff but really it's just something where there's not like that invisible wall Mm -hmm. between the school and it and the space that it's operating in that's Mm -hmm. what I'd want to see and where all children but especially young like Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander kids don't feel like they have to hide a bit of them or they don't feel like they have to sacrifice like the best of them, who they are, in order to succeed at school. But also to be bold and loud in it. I want to be bold and loud like any other kid is and make noise in that language or make noise in my identity and not be told off because, you know, I'm an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander kid doing that. Yeah. You know, there's a a theory that, you know, teenagers would be better off starting school at 9 or 10 a.m. or later because they need the sleep in. What are they in there at 7.30 a.m. doing <laughs> four unit whatever? Um, they could start at 10 and finish at 5 because uh, yeah. it suits them more. You know, there's this very Western also idea about, well, you if it means you're working hard if you're up at, in, at 7 o'clock, you're already in then, you've swum 20 laps and you've done this and done that. And I really thought that COVID would be this incredible reminder and people are talking about it, like, I don't want to go back to how busy I was before. What does busy even mean? Yeah. Oh, I. The thing is, if it's if it can happen on Zoom, I'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you see yourself um, in the next 10 years? You know, you're, you're someone who's had the most incredible kind of um, uh, you know, I mean, you're co-founder of, of the, of this, um, uh, Indigenous Youth Education Coalition, co-chair of Learning Creates Australia, an Obama Foundation leader in the Asia Pacific. Mm. Is there a job, or is there a, a, something that you feel like you'll pivot at? Pivot, if I can use that hideous COVID word. Um, <laughs> pivot. Um, do you see you see yourself in a different position in ten years' time? Well, to use another COVID slang, well, now more than ever, I've realised. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like in 10 years' time, like I honestly don't know. I know that by that time I'd want, like I'd be out of the coalition and be run by, continue to be run by young, younger people. But I I think I would love to be able to play a role in, um, I love to 
convene and bring different people together around um, issues where, you know, multiple people aren't satisfied, you know. So whatever that kind of looks like or takes shape, I feel like there's power in, in bringing, yeah, different coalitions of people together. And I think that's the that's the only way forward, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'd hope to be playing some kind of service type role in, in that area. Have you had mentors along the way that have been able to help and are they hard to find? <laughs> yeah, I've had I've had um a few mentors and actually mentoring has been really um important to me. And I've just been that weird person. I what my first um mentor is this incredible Radrian Wanarua woman, Donna Murray, who's also the CEO of Indigenous Allied Health Australia. And I remember uh, seeing her speak once and it only took one time and I think I was like 20 and <laughs> as soon as she got off the stage I just bailed her up and said can you please mentor me and then that's been about 10 years or so now of mentoring so yeah I've had some really powerful mentors but it's just been more of that informal like once mm-hmm. I've met someone and just like seeing kind of how they think and yeah being, being able to to learn a lot from from a few people now. I sometimes have had mentors who didn't even know they were my mentor. <laughs> you know, when you <laughs> it's just someone you admire and they're in your frame of reference, or maybe they're not even, but you just go, what would she do? Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. You know, they're sort of you kind of align with their system of beliefs, I guess, and you think you know, like so it might be a great lecturer, it might be a great teacher, or, or even just a work colleague, and you think. Yeah, no, she wouldn't. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't do it. No, I reckon. Okay, <laughs> you know, and they don't even know. And then I, you know, I remember years later telling them, and them going, "Oh, thanks. You could have come up." And I'm like, "Oh, no, it was all right." <laughs> but yeah, it's true. Yeah. Mentoring just, as you say, it's it's touching base with with her and being able to say, "I'm thinking of doing it this way. What do you reckon?" You know. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been really lucky that my mentors haven't just been for me individually, but they've kind of come in and mentored like our whole NIAC crew, you know, wow. when we've been wow. trying to think about strategy, you know, like, mm. yeah, just volunteering their time to help with our strategic planning or, like, help us understand a particular focus or topic. Like, I've been able to draw on those to really help set the foundations for the coalition as well, which is, I feel like, yeah, that's that's also the best way to use mentoring is to, it's like, um, yeah, it's like being able to draw on your own star advisory team. I love it. <laughs> I love a star advisory team. Finally, you know, this podcast is called Who Cares? And mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to get people to kind of care a little bit more in their everyday life. And there's no doubt it can seem overwhelming and if you did it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, I mean that's not what you're asking. But it's just saying, I guess, make a little bit more effort in your own life to challenge your own thinking or challenge your own habits Mm -hmm. or challenge what you think is absolutely true, you know. That is the truth. And like, well, is it? Because I also think that when we go to this next election, could it be December? Could it be March? Who know? We don't know. But um, we're voting on lots of things, aren't we? We're not just voting on climate change. We're voting on how we want to be represented, what we want to see. 
And yeah. I keep talking about the election as being like an exam people should study for. You know, you can't yeah. be going in there going, God, I didn't look anything up. I've got no idea who anyone is. You want to go in there and make good decisions about, you know, what, who you're going to vote for and why. But in terms of this new way of looking at education, how can what can what can a person do? Like, what's a way? Do you start with your local community? Do you? Is it about donations? You know, I think everyone should be donating some money if they can, and be you know be smart about where you put that money. Do something good with it. I'd I'd say like just think about, you know, education to me is all about legacy. You know, like I you know like you think about just even the different things that you get passed down to you within like a family kind of unit. It might be a particular meal that everyone cooks or, you know, just something that you do every time, you know, New Year's rolls around. Um, like the the what we teach and the values we teach young people is a form of our legacy, you know. You'd, you hardly ever meet someone who can't recall their favourite teacher or, can't recall a particular moment that they had at school. You know, um, education is just so f- powerful in shaping individuals and shaping our society. And so my call to action would be to look at, you know, how are the who's going to invest in education, but what kind of education? Do you want an education that only serves to that seems to be in service to some kind of political ideology or do you want to invest in an education that is caring about young people and caring about young people's futures because that is ultimately our future that we're that we're all going to be betting on so it's interesting because uh when you speak of those traditions you know White folks love their traditions of having gone to this school and I want my son to go to this school and then my grandson will go to this school. You know, there's this sense of, you know, mm-hmm. and there's some English background, whereas apparently we're not allowed to celebrate the traditions and in, in your culture. And if yours are so important, well, then why aren't, isn't an Indigenous Torres Strait Islander? Uh, that's just as important too. You clearly want that, so why weren't you allowed in another and, in fact, why not maybe learn about it and be part of it? And I guess, you know, if there can be a Montessori school and there can be a Steiner school, you know, yeah. you know, where people have said, I don't like the way things are done, so we want these separate kind of schools where they do different things, where often it is a more experiential way of learning, actually, going outside, yeah. being more, there's, there's room for it. I just, I really think we're at a point at the moment where we are going to have to do some things so differently and the, the change will have to come faster because it has to come faster and it's just wondering if people have the courage to do it. And where do you get excited about? Stop seeing this downside of it, see the upside yeah. of it, you know? Yeah, agree. I think this is the time where we can actually be asking the people who want to lead this country what their vision is, you know. And have one. And, Why not have and one? Have Just one. have a vision. Please have a vision. Julia Zemiro asks, who cares? Yes, let's have a vision. Leaders with vision, it's all we want. Well, we want a bit more than that. Thank you so much to Haley and to Corey for doing the podcast, this uh, number two out of six podcasts in the next few months. I really have been reflecting on this notion that 
we are going to have to make some very, very significant changes in terms of climate, in terms of wanting to reconcile with the Indigenous people of this country to education. You know, how can we look at change as a good thing? How can we look at change as a necessary thing? We have to make so many of them um, at the moment and um, finding a way to maybe switch our thinking to the good that can come out of it, how it could bind us together and not at the things that will separate us. Anyway, onwards and upwards, hey? See you next month. Thanks for joining me. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.